Welcome to the Arkansas Inc. podcast, where we discuss the latest topics and trends in economic development with subject matter experts and influencers from across the nation and around the world. Welcome to the Arkansas Inc. podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Moore, Executive Vice President of Marketing and Research for the Arkansas Economic Development Commission. Today, our guests are Matt Francis, founder, president, and CEO of Ozark Integrated Circuits, and Jim Holmes, Chief Technical Officer of Ozark IC, which is a fabulous semiconductor company spun out of research at the University of Arkansas and headquartered at the Arkansas Research and Technology Park in Fayetteville, Arkansas. The firm specializes in the design of analog and mixed signal integrated circuits for extreme environments for both high and low temperatures. How extreme, you ask? Well, Matt's team recently won grants from NASA to facilitate further exploration of Venus which happens to be the hottest planet in the solar system. So I would say that's pretty extreme, wouldn't you, Matt <laughs> and Jim? Yes, it's, uh, it's well, it's hot. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast to you both, and we appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. And what a fascinating subject that we're going to dive into today and just kind of allow our audience to learn a little bit more about what you do and what propelled you to, to start Ozark IC. And that is correct, how you pronounce your company, correct? Ozark IC, is that right? Yeah, that, that's correct, Ozark IC. Well, tell us a little bit about integrated circuits and the IC part of your name as it's referred to in your world. So, yeah, so integrated circuits are, to the layman, you know, if you look at like a circuit board, if you broke open something, there's usually a green circuit board and there's all these little black boxes we work on the black boxes. So it's integrated circuits are basically thousands and millions of transistors or switches all combined together to do some sort of advanced function. And so most of those are made out of silicon, the vast majority. And they have certain limitations of how hot they can work, how cold they can work. And so where Ozark IC comes in is where you want to go kind of beyond that spectrum of temperature. So uh, do you want to operate at really high temperatures or really low temperatures in space, things like that? Then that's usually where we come in and we, we work with more exotic materials and design techniques to make it all work. So I guess it's obvious to say, you know, from the introduction there that your company was sort of born out of the research. So how did you come up with this idea for, uh, for starting Ozark Integrated Circuits and how did it all begin? Well, I did my PhD at the at the university uh, under Alan Mantooth, and you know I got exposure to extreme environment electronics through several projects there, and that's actually I did my dissertation on radiation hardened circuits. And as far as that leading to a company, I, it's like I've told people before is that if you're not sure if you want to start a company, go work for a startup. So um, <laughs> I, I was uh, I worked through graduate school. I worked at at another startup, and that's actually where I met Jim. That was a software startup, so we were looking at the other side of things, like analyzing designs instead of doing designs for extreme environments. And that company ultimately wasn't successful, but learned a lot of things. And after it went, we decided with some other local entrepreneurs and professors, decided to start Ozark, give it a go. And that's now been over eight years. And with Ozark, really, it's more about doing the design side of it. We're not a software company. We're a hardware company. We design hardware. However, we've found we tend to write a lot of software to design our circuits. So we're actually kind of a weird hybrid, I guess, because if you do those kind of circuits, there aren't really tools off the shelf for doing it, models and tools. It's, we're, we're kind of off on our own. So we develop a lot of our own in-house tooling, design capability, things like that. 
Yeah, with that said, and maybe, Jim, you can jump in here and talk a little bit about this. You're, you're not the typical hardware design company. I recently read something on, on your website that you're not only modeling and designing integrated circuits, systems, and chips for extreme environments, but in fact, you helped to write the book on it. So how did that come about? How have you been able to innovate in that space in ways that have been relevant for the needs of the context that you work in? With respect to attacking non-mainstream engineering problems, a lot of these problems are described within an application. So, for example, we began our, our journey on extreme environment, in particular looking at cryogenic operation of circuits. So cryogenics means really, really cold, super, super cold. Because as you can imagine in the solar system, you know, NASA is exploring the solar system, there are parts of the solar system that are just extremely cold. And then there's also this issue of what's called ionizing radiation. We started our foray into the extreme environment on working on really cold circuits with ionizing radiation. And as Matt mentioned, you know, his graduate work really was a seminal research thrust in how do we predict how circuits are going to work in these extreme environments. And that really set the tone. We followed the interest from NASA into the high temperature area, but it really started looking at things that are operating in a very, very cold environment with lots of radiation and figuring out how to make the circuits work in these environments. And so we had the the privilege of working with some, just a great team of researchers from here at the university, Dr. Alan Mantooth, some professors at uh, Georgia Tech, uh, John Kressler, and then some really awesome teams at Boeing and BAE Systems. And that sort of launched a whole thought process on how do you attack extreme environmental electronics. And then when the opportunity emerged to start the company, we already had, you know, in the back of our minds, the underpinnings of what, how that company would, what it would look like. And we had some ideas of what we would want to try first. So actually our, our first project, our first NASA SBIR was taking a process that we knew we could operate in a very, very cold environment. And so we, we started there and that was our first go. And in the first six months of the company, it became evident that the things that we had learned in the software startup that didn't succeed, the things that we had sort of bloodied our knuckles on and the mistakes that we made there, we were able to avoid all of those right away <laughs> and then attack a, a really tough problem that NASA had scoped out and responded with our own capabilities. Yeah, we use that word a lot. And I'd like to really maybe take this time to kind of just think through extreme environments because we kind of use that loosely, but just for our, our listeners and I automatically think about temperature, right? And I mean, you guys are talking about Venus and Mars and, you know, there's this range, what, 500 degrees Celsius to negative 120 degrees Celsius or something like that. But help us understand a little bit about extreme environments because it's more than temperature, right? Or temperature ranges that are that extreme. Yeah. um, Traditional extreme environments is is probably actually more like uh, standard temperature ranges, but then you worry about vibration, humidity, uh, things like that. Even pressure. And pressure, that's another one. Uh, yeah, has a, yeah, a really high pressure. Yeah, the, uh, the, the pressure on Venus is 100 times Earth uh, pressure on wow. top of everything. So in the case of Venus, you have to worry about atmosphere, what it's made up of, because Venus has also got nasty. It's mostly CO2, but there's some other nasty gases in there that will eat through your circuits. Acid, um, acid clouds in, or something yeah. like that. <laughs> you can't <laughs> use just anything. At certain altitudes on Venus, it rains sulfuric acid. Yes. So, uh, yeah, it's not a pleasant place. 
<laughs> so yes, radiation's one, uh, and that's so that's one we started tackling when we put the first satellites in space and started noticing weird things happening with the with electronics in them, and figured out that we'd have uh, ionizing radiation affect the circuits in many different ways. Sometimes over time, it just makes them quit working, or or they it interrupts their performance and they lock up. And so that's a whole that's an interesting space for space. Um, <laughs> that's, yeah. We've 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 come and gone to doing work in that area a lot over the years. I said right now, I'd say primarily the extreme environment um, we work in is um, is is, a, is the really high temperature. There's also optical extreme environments. So ultraviolet light. Is one, so really short wavelengths uh, you get that damages silicon. So you, and you, you've seen UV fade your curtains and things like that. It, it damages circuits. So if you want to look at the things in UV with silicon, it, it has a limited lifetime. And so that's that's another space that we have done a lot of work in is ultraviolet light and sensing it with rugged sensors. So in terms of the application of your technology, and I mean, obviously, this is a great example of how research came from the University of Arkansas, and I guess you would call it commercialization. Would that be fair to say in technology transfer? Would that be fair to say that this is a good example of that sort of effort? Absolutely. Uh, yes. Yeah, so obviously, you have the just the research that comes the expertise that comes from students out of the university, we have, see if I get this right, I think we have five of our technical staff have 11 degrees from the university. So, so you can imagine there's a lot of very specialized expertise that comes with each of those right. advanced degrees. We have three PhDs from the U of A on staff. And some of those were part of the EPSCOR program as well, correct? Yes, yes. So many of those have been involved in the EPSCOR program. Uh, we're working with professors that are working in, uh, on EPSCOR funding right now, in fact. So that's one way, that is that, and that's a big reason we have our uh, center of excellence in Arkansas in this area is because the university produces those students. And then we've had many collaborative research projects over the years that have enabled that sort of taking things from the lab and putting in an application. Yeah, and to the point of staffing, you know, I think there's a large percentage of engineering graduates from the University of Arkansas who have to address the prospect of leaving the state to get their first job, Right. And so we've been very, very excited about the fact that we've been able to hire students from the University of Arkansas and to be able to leverage their backgrounds in either you know, the research that they did as graduate students and leverage the special knowledge that they accumulated for extreme environment electronics. So let's use this as kind of a segue to then kind of move from the research and the commercialization of the research. The amazing thing to us is just how much of a need there is for what you guys are creating there. And and that's, for me, is obvious in just the grants you're receiving. So a couple of grants that I want to talk about first is the, the NASA award and then talk a little bit, one that was actually preempted that, I believe, or was previous to that with the United States Air Force. But the grants you received from NASA, tell us a little bit about your work with NASA and the Venus missions. Sure. Yeah, I think we were saying those were like our sixth and seventh. We looked at each other like, I guess that is a sixth and seventh award from NASA. NASA was the first agency we won an award from, and we've had a very good relationship with NASA over the years. Our work on Venus actually started from another project that we were doing with NASA that was targeting kind of slightly less ambitious goals than, than Venus. And in the process, we learned about the technology that NASA had actually developed that could work on Venus. And so we actually were able to get into a licensing agreement with NASA. NASA has a great licensing program. We work with the folks at the Glenn Research Center in Cleveland on that. 
So what we were able then to do is start working with the NASA researchers on the breadth of knowledge that they had and trying to make electronics work on the surface of Venus. We had a couple of false starts, some ideas for how we could apply it, and then finally started having some real traction with the technology. I think we've filed now two, three follow-on patents to the portfolio that NASA developed that we've licensed. It's been a very productive area for us for basically applying the technology. So that's the relationship part of it. But what we've done is that NASA's developed this integrated circuit technology that was basically designed to work on Venus. We were able to add some new design techniques to it that would extend its versatility, increase its density, reduce its supply range, things like that, and basically make it more useful. And and one of the targets that we've had for that is to basically make it compatible with like a uh, kind of a standard aerospace bus, like 28 volts, which is super common in the aerospace industry. It's kind of like the 12 volts in a car, 28 volts is kind of one of the de facto standards. So we developed some really interesting things with it we've done. We started with transceivers, basically let you communicate to and from somewhere really hot. That's kind of like where we like to start with the technology is if you can't communicate with it, then what's the point? (laughs) Um, So you need to be, if you're going to have a digital control somewhere remote, you need to be able to command and control and get data back. So we built transceivers. We've done sensing systems. We recently just completed, on the grants you were just talking about, we did a motor driver. So now you're getting the actuation, so you can actually move something. This would be like moving a stage for a drill on the surface of Venus. And that module we built, we demonstrated for 1,100 hours at 470C, which is kind of a nominal Venus temperature. To our knowledge, that's the longest anyone's demonstrated a circuit like that at those temperatures. You've got industrial strength tools, and then you've got Venus. <laughs> yeah, Space yeah, age we, industrial we it strength. Like our, it, it's our moonshot. <laughs> if we can make it work on Venus, we can make it work anywhere. <laughs> and so for commercial application-wise, we're taking what we learned there and applying it for uh, geothermal, downhole geothermal, downhole oil and gas. Uh, a lot of geothermal wells actually look a lot like Venus. Uh, 400C plus, well over 100 times pressure. For aerospace, you can imagine in a jet engine, it could be 1,000 degrees C at the afterburner end of a military engine. So having things sensing and actuators that can work at those temperatures can replace more uh, mechanical systems, hydraulic systems, pneumatic systems. So um, those, those are our application spaces for that. There was an article I read recently, and this was put out by NASA, just kind of learning a little bit more about you guys, but it was survivable systems for extreme environments. And they're talking about missions to comets or close to the sun, high-velocity impacts are a real concern and with impact velocities that they say reach greater than 500 kilometers per second or something. So they're talking about a lot of stuff that I really don't understand, to be honest. But the one thing that I gleaned from that is they said that for operations and survivability in extreme environments, these innovations by your company are continuing to emerge and become and are crucial to really the ultimate success and development of a future NASA missions. Just thinking about the hardware challenges that you have to overcome, how is Ozark IC approaching these challenges in ways that maybe companies like Honeywell, for example, can't do, won't do, or you know, they maybe they just haven't figured out? In terms of the why we do it, if you talk to anybody at NASA or the Air Force or anybody in aerospace, the acronym that they will talk to you about is called SWAP, S-W-A-P, which is size, weight, and power. In spacecraft as an aircraft, a significant portion of the weight of the aircraft is the cabling between either the avionics and actuators or pumps or motors or signals and sensors. 
and the weight of the cabling is the significant part of that. And so where the demand for our technology is getting a lot of great attention is that we can reduce the cabling weight by having circuits that operate in a high-temperature domain, either, like Matt said, near the back end of the jet engine or on the skin of an aircraft or downhole or a geothermal well, what have you. And so being able to, to have electronics that operate in those domains means that you can do a lot of processing and aggregation of sensing into one node. We call it a smart node, right? But the smart node aggregates all this information and then can transmit it across simply just two wires. And instead of having dozens and dozens of wires going from the cold domain into the hot domain, you just have a pair of wires. And the electronics pay for themselves in size, weight, and power because you don't have to carry all this copper around inside the airplane or inside the spacecraft. And that goes directly to the bottom line in fuel consumption, whether it's rocket fuel, whether it's jet fuel, whether it's operational time and the overall cost of operating it. So we've had companies in the aerospace industry give us a formula that tells us exactly how much we're saving the U.S. government by aggregating these electronics down in size, weight, and power. Everybody knows this. And so that's really where we're bringing to bear the technologies, whether it's the high-temperature ICs, the high-temperature packaging, the intellectual property that we've developed for communicating from one temperature domain to another. And so to answer your question, you know, like companies like Honeywell, for example, I'd really like to believe that we're smarter than all those guys at Honeywell. <laughs> I wasn't raised to believe that, but... Uh, <laughs> but uh, One of the things with small businesses, we'll just take the higher risk approaches. Exactly. And there is that whole, we don't know any better. So, mm. um, <laughs> yeah. uh, so we, we might try something that somebody with more experience might be able to talk themselves out of. So startups are resource limited, but you can try whatever you want with the resources you have. Many people that I know in the SBIR, you know, the small business research world where we get our funding. So that's exactly what they see the intention of this funding is to get these really hard ideas tackled by small businesses who will try some really innovative things and kind of break loose new technologies. Just a reminder to our audience, you're listening to the Arkansas Inc. podcast, and we are visiting with Matt Francis and Jim Holmes of Ozark Integrated Circuits. And we're going to take a short break and we'll come back and talk a little bit about their work with the U.S. Air Force and just some trends that may be looming in the future there that will allow them to continue to innovate here in the state of Arkansas. Welcome back to the Arkansas Inc. podcast. We're visiting with Matt Francis and Jim Holmes of Ozark Integrated Circuits and having some fascinating conversations about their work with NASA. And now I want to turn the corner a little bit and talk about your contract that was awarded with the U.S. Air Force and just how that technology was utilized within turbine engines. And tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So one of the things when you work with these really high temperature devices is you have to have something to put them in. Because if you have the chip, you have to connect it to something, right? You have to get to the outside world. And so even though we started as a chip company, we sort of gravitated towards getting into what they call packaging in the industry. So the things that go around the chip, what the chips are glued to, and then even getting into connectors, harnesses, all this kind of stuff. And so the work with the Air Force came around to applying some of the things we'd learned uh, for doing the really high temperature stuff and saying, hey, could we do this at 
slightly lower temperatures that were more urgent need for jet engines. So in that work, the high end of what we're talking about, it's kind of a range between 200 and 300 C. We're using more off-the-shelf parts. In fact, we're not in, in that range. We're really not designing the chips. We're actually buying chips from other companies. But what we're doing is creating high-density substrates. So we're creating basically circuit boards that really tightly integrate all those chips into a module and make them useful. And for jet engines, as Jim was alluding to earlier, this is where you're getting into the concept of something like a smart node. So this is going from having a single box that all these sensors and wires come out of, runs all over the engine, that's thermally managed, and then if you want to upgrade it, you have to redo everything. You have to pull the box off. If something breaks, you have to pull it all apart. What we want to go to is a distributed architecture, which is much more like what you have in your car these days, which is you have buses throughout the system. So these are basically only a couple of wires and power going around the system. If you need to sense or actuate something, you put a node on the bus. If one sensor breaks, you replace the sensor. If you decide there's some new capability you want to add to the engine, you add it. And to do this, they need these electronic, these very light, highly integrated electronic modules that'll work in this 200 to 300 C degree range. Now the challenge is versus Venus, they would be happy if we got to a Venusian day, which is what, 180 Earth days, I think. For aircraft, they want to get to 50,000 hours of reliability. Mm. So, uh, because as you can imagine, if you're on an airplane, you want it to stay up there. Kind of important for it to stay up there. (laughs) Yeah, kind of important, kind of important. (laughs) It's kind of a big Uh, deal. Yeah, kind of a big deal. And so what it's, that work has really driven us into understanding reliability. Uh, we've had to develop lots of methods for evaluating reliability of the modules we create. I guess that's the long answer to your question, but that's the work we've done with the Air Force now for the last couple of years, and we're getting ready to go into another, uh, basically into a field trial stage. In the next year with those, we're building a set of prototypes that will be put into test engines at different sites around the U.S., and gather data and see how they do. So is the expectation that the technology will become more pervasive in most or if not all turbine engines just because of... Yeah, and and really in this work, we're kind of riding on the backs of a lot of work that was done by many other companies to develop all these chips that would operate in this range and we're the systems integrator. And so we're making it much cheaper to integrate all those parts together and we're using some IC techniques for doing the design so we can basically we can manage the complexity better than it has been done traditionally. And so our designs work the first time, which when you're using more expensive materials, uh, more expensive manufacturing processes than standard, the fewer spins of your design, it can be make or break on a product because uh, your prototyping runs can be incredibly expensive. And so that's where we've really broken down a lot of barriers to the prototypes and the small production runs. And is your hope or expectation that this will then be utilized in a broad range within the use of turbine engines, such as you know commercial aircraft or even defense systems, missile systems, those sorts of applications? Yes, the technology has a very wide market application space that it can be applied to. In this space, we're starting with turbine engines, and also there's oil and gas in particular is a, another application that can immediately make use of it. As we get from turbine engines, you start in military, then you get into commercial, get through all those qualifications. And then there are definitely lots of dual-use applications in missiles, rockets, anything that is hot that you need a sensor control. 
industrial furnaces and controls as it gets cheaper and more pervasive. I mean, there's a lot of places it could be used. Last week, uh, SpaceX successfully landed all three of their Falcon Heavy boosters for the first time. And so just curious, where are we in the arc of technology for space in your world? And what trends kind of are you seeing that are on the horizon? Well, Ozark, I see with a lot of our SBIR funding coming out of NASA and our focus on electronics for extreme environment exploration. We watch all the same videos everybody else does about SpaceX, and we're just blown away by the things that they've been able to accomplish. And so, yeah, I think, you know, the privatization of space is well on its way. You know, and NASA has been promoting this for a long time, promoting access to space platforms for for test and development of electronics. And Ozark IC has leveraged that as best we can. In fact, we've created what's called an ultraviolet smart node. It's a rugged, silicon carbide-based, space-borne smart node, and it was launched to the ISS this past January, and uh, it's been installed on the space station, and it's basically it's like a suitcase-sized test rig, and so NASA is, is going to be connecting it to to the space station in May so that we can gather telemetry from it. So we're going to have three smart nodes collecting data from low Earth orbit on the ISS here this spring. Fingers crossed that we'll, we'll start be streaming some data from those sensor nodes. One sensor node will be looking off into space, so it'll be looking directly at the sun. One will be looking down at the Earth with reflection of ultraviolet light off the atmosphere. And then one will be looking aft as the space station is moving through orbit. So, yeah, we're pretty excited about that. And yeah. And NASA, that having a space platform like that really allows us to generate a lot of good data, to collect a lot of good data, and also to validate what NASA calls a technology readiness level. And if you Google NASA TRL levels, there's like nine levels of technology readiness. So being able to have a platform like the ISS and having access to it as a private company to develop our products and to test our products is it's of national interest. It's a great platform for, for doing that kind of development. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. I'm more amazing, just, you know, that kind of stuff is happening right here, you know, in our backyard. I just think that's amazing. So what ways, as we kind of turn the corner here toward closing up, what ways has being in Arkansas having access to the EPSCoR program, SBIR, in what ways has the state of Arkansas been able to help you compete and succeed? Oh, sure, in so many ways. So we discussed the university and the ecosystem around that that's really started before my time in the 90s, things like the High Density Electronics Center up here. But then for the state, when we started the company, we uh, like all companies, you sort of struggle. You have to get your feet under you. At the time, it was the Arkansas Science and Technology Authority. That's now part of ADC. That was quickly a place that we found was incredibly supportive in helping us with our first little bit of some small grants to help us explore technologies we could transfer. We've received some investment through ADC over the years that's been hugely successful because the SBIR program cannot pay for everything. And so a lot of these programs that the state has put in place help us fill the gaps. And when you're trying to go from project to project and get things going, filling those gaps, that's life or death, (laughs) depending on what stage your company's at. Those have been great. The Small Business Technology Development Center at U of A and at UALR, it's been hugely yeah, successful. Very helpful. Uh, very helpful. Rebecca Todd has done a ton for us, helping us 
with identifying markets and market sizes and I mean even even reviewing proposals. Yeah, reviewing proposals yeah. our experience has been uh, the ecosystem for starting high-tech companies in Arkansas has gone from good to really great in the last uh, in the last eight years we're amazed with the things that some of the groups like startup junkie up here have been able to do across the state the conductor that program's amazing Arkansas really is becoming known as a place that starts companies a place to start companies including high tech so kind of final question what's the most surprising thing you've learned about being an entrepreneur obviously you came from very technical fields in your studies what surprised you most about the entrepreneurial world for a technical guy the most important part is learning all the non-technical that is what will make or break your company the technology is important but if you can't do the rest of it, <laughs> you're not going to make it. And so that's, I guess, for me, like the number of hats I've had to learn to wear over the years. Is, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Jeff, I was just looking at your title, you know, marketing and communications and research. And, you know, we're just simple engineers. So the writing and the communications is uh, extra effort for us. So <laughs> I'd say the amount of writing that we've done both technical and non-technical writing that we've had to do to get the company visible was not what I ever expected. So were you guys, when you were growing up, did you ever envision you'd be working with space and rockets and extreme environments? Is this anything you ever thought about? Well, when I first started, it was we would work with anybody that would have us. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good way to be. Yeah. For me, I actually grew up around airplanes. My dad actually started out installing radios at Falcon Jet in Little Rock. So I grew up around airplanes and had always kind of wanted to get into aerospace. Kind of followed my passions in college and hadn't really thought about that. And it's been really kind of a pleasant full circle to come back and find myself doing aerospace. Yeah. You know, it wasn't really what the road I set out on, but it's really cool to come back to it. The closest I think I got was strapping little army men onto a bottle rocket, you know, and then kind of shooting them up into that. That didn't, didn't work out well for the little army. <laughs> it was a, well, thank you guys so much. What a great conversation this has been and just learning more about what you do. And uh, we continue to be amazed at the progress you make and the difference you're making in innovation that's kind of coming out of that part of the state and Ozark, I see especially. So thank you, Matt, and thank you, Jim, for your time, and just wish you guys the best as you move forward and continue to innovate in that space and the space of energy and exploration and other things. Well, thank you. It's our pleasure. We really enjoyed talking with you today. Yeah, thank you. This has been the Arkansas Inc. Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Moore. To learn more, visit our website at arkansasedc.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.